0: The Holy Spirit, what we know not teach us, what we have not grant us, and what we are not make us for your love's sake. Amen. First of all, just to say how good it is to be here. I've been here numbers of times. I occasionally sneak in the back on that side. It takes bravery to cross to, to this side. Um, and I've been here for many meetings. But it's really good to be with you here on a Sunday for uh, worship here and at eleven fifteen. And particularly during this time of vacancy, great to hear uh, the vision shared at the beginning. And uh, it's been wonderful to work with your leadership team. You are, as you know, but you don't need telling. But you are blessed here uh, with uh, uh, all of those who are leading through this vacancy and at other times I, I sometimes wonder whether you really need a vicar actually i mean you got so many good folks here but we want one and uh and we've been praying and uh bishop tim has been praying i've been praying so many throughout the diocese and not just working with you practically but praying with you as you go through this time and uh And we trust and know that God is good. And uh, as we go through this next time of advertisement, uh, uh, we are looking for that right person who is being sent. I I occasionally, from the advert, get people who phone me to speak about Christchurch. And I try and tell them they don't wanna come here, there are much better jobs elsewhere in the Church of England. And uh, No, but there's a real excitement out there. And uh, so uh, we trust and we pray as encouraged uh, and look for all the great things God is going to do here. Uh, later in this year and for the years to come. So I really would commend to you uh, all that you've heard uh, this morning from uh, from George, Judith, and from uh, James. So um, you've invited me to come and be a part of Luke chapter 6. What a, a, a great um, part to come in on. Um, Luke is, is a great writer. And through the service so far, I'm sure, so far, I'm sure you've enjoyed the bits of uh, Luke's gospel uh, that you've been reminded of. It's Luke, of course, who gives us some of those early stories uh, that we don't have anywhere else. The wonderful stories surrounding the birth of uh, John the Baptist and then Jesus. Uh, Indeed, for many, Christmas wouldn't be Christmas without what Luke has given us. But not just birth, also a brief insight into Jesus's early life, the beginning of his ministry, baptism, temptations, his first healing and miracles, and then in chapter five last week, I hope, something about the call of others. Um, which then leads into this week, chapter 6. So having called, uh, God then equips. I'm just pausing very briefly there because that's so easily said but so vital to what we believe as Christians. Those whom God calls, he also equips. God doesn't send us into situations without the wherewithal to cope. And whatever situation we find ourselves in, he is there with us. We are never alone uh, through this life as a Christian. But let's uh, move on to the particular passage we heard this morning, verses 27 to 36. Now, you heard uh, one version read. We saw another version uh, up on the screen, and I'm going to occasionally quote from a different version. doesn't matter. It all works together. So if you've got your Bibles open or on your phone, uh, I hope this will all uh, link with what you have. We're in a passage where uh, we're particularly hearing about Jesus, the teacher, and today's part comes immediately after Luke's version of what we often call the Sermon on the Mount, but in Luke it's called the Sermon on the Plain because he says that Jesus, after coming down from the Mounting, uh, starts giving this teaching. And the very first words in the version that, uh, Bible version I was using, just very slightly different from the one on the screens, but the very first words that Jesus says in this passage are, but I say to you but I say to you. In many Bibles, today's section has the heading love for enemies, love of your enemies. And We might just need a a quick normality check before we go on because the norm is of course that you love your friends and you hate your enemy. Just read history, look around. This is how it goes, you love your friends, you hate your enemies, it's the way of the world. And as Christians, we can very easily, perhaps just quite glibly say, well, we must love our enemies. But let's not forget just how untypical this is. Let's not forget what's being asked of us in this. Let's not forget how this sounds to others. Perhaps to those exploring Christianity for the first time, those wanting to find out more about this Jesus thing and what he's about. So equipping his newly called disciples Jesus begins by saying but I say to you you know the norm you know how it usually works well listen up because if you're with me it doesn't work that way you're going to have to learn some different standards from the world standards different attitudes from those around you and to make the point he says but I say to you listen love your enemies Well, I guess that most of us are up for changing our feelings from negative to positive. We could try a bit harder to think about those whom we spend up so much emotional energy being bitter about. But Jesus is interested in more than our feelings. And Luke follows the word love with three verbs. Loving is about doing, he's telling us. Not just about what we feel or what we think, it's about our actions. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Do good, bless, pray. If you go to sleep now and you take nothing else away this morning, take those three things with you. Do good, bless, pray. I'm trying to then explain something of what that might look like we come to this bit about turning the other cheek. One of those sayings that many of us knew long before we knew where it came from. Verse 29, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. A couple of years ago, I I came across an interpretation that's perhaps familiar to many of you here, but has really helped me try to get to grips with this part of chapter six, because... Most interpretations I'd heard in my life suggest that Jesus is teaching us that we shouldn't retaliate. We don't, if you like, up the ante. Instead, we offer the other cheek a refusal to retaliate and to fight violence with violence. Turning the other cheek being about having the stature and strength to break that cycle of violence, to break the sort of tit for tat, the escalating animosity and hatred. Now, whilst that's good and powerful uh, and important in many ways, there's a a danger I think sometimes of trying to encourage what you might call a sort of doormat Christianity, allowing people just to walk all over us. So the bit that sort of caught my attention was someone explaining that under Roman law, the usual rebuke for a social inferior was to deliver a backhanded slap across their cheek, a sort of dismissive slap. And by turning the other cheek, the oppressed person is daring the abuser to slap again with the forehand. And forehand slaps in the tradition were reserved for your social equals face to face. So the sophisticated strategy that Jesus is offering in turning the other cheek changes three things. Firstly, yes, it interrupts that cycle of violence. But it also holds up a mirror to wrong action, getting that perpetrator to to a greater level of self-awareness of what's in front of them, what they're doing. And so thirdly, it restores the social dignity of the victim. Turning the other cheek offers no retaliation. It offers instead truth. It holds a mirror up to the wrongdoing. And we deprive the violent person of their undisputed control and the power that they seek to claim for themselves. Back in the uh, early 90s, I was fascinated by the accounts of the hostages, Terry Waite, John McCarthy, and Brian Keenan, telling of their brutal years of captivity at the hands of the fundamentalist Shiite militiamen uh, in Beirut. And having prayed through those late 80s, you might remember the many years when they were in captivity, uh, uh, those heart-rending years, it was really interesting to come to see something of the faith, the fortitude, and the resilience that had kept them going through that time. And for me, one of the most memorable parts of their records is a passage in uh, Brian Keenan's book. It's called An Evil Cradling where he describes a moment of transformation for his whole experience. He'd been suffering uh, regular humiliations from his guards, and one in particular had been beating him daily with the butt of his gun. Just for fun, this guard had come in, because he could. And then during one of those beatings, Brian Keenan began to laugh. He felt, he said, an enormous sense of relief, a kind of peace. Because he suddenly in that moment realized that he had nothing. That everything he had had been taken away from him. No one knew where he was in the world. He was totally alone. And this guard had made every effort to abuse him, but there was actually nothing more he could do to him any further. This was the limit of his power. And so for Keenan there came a, a kind of catharsis. And he laughed, and the guard stopped. Kenan had taken away the God's power and undisputed control, and it was the last beating that he received. When we turn the other cheek, we don't lie down, we stand up. We stand up for the values of Jesus, the dignity of every human being, that whatever our situation, whatever we don't have, we do have the love of God in Jesus Christ, And are loved as a child of God. And nothing, nothing can take that from us. And that's just the first half of verse 29. There's more. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. I guess you're at the morning service so you can watch Les Miserables this evening. I guess that's how it goes. Uh, Or somewhere on catch-up. Now whilst I think the musical is fantastic, the screen version does a better job of reminding us of what is vital in Victor Hugo's novel. You see, there's one moment, one action, one Christ-like opportunity that is at the heart of the whole story and in fact transforms everything. If you're not familiar with the story, uh, let me briefly relate the plot. The story begins in early 19th century France with a peasant, Jean Valjean, just released from 19 years of imprisonment, five years for stealing bread to try and feed his starving sister and her family, and another 14 years for various um, escape attempts that he's made. And Valjean, as he's released, struggles to find work and is turned away by everybody, including any innkeepers, because of the uh, yellow passport that marks him as a former conflict, a former convict. He sleeps on the streets and he sleeps angry and he sleeps bitter. And then one night, a benevolent bishop, you might just want to hold those words for a moment because uh, um, they don't often come in stories. Let's do there. I'll do it again. A benevolent bishop shares his, ho- his home with Jean Valjean. He shares his own meal and he shares one of his good beds. But having experienced nothing but cruelty from others, Valjean runs off with the bishop's silver cutlery early the next morning. And when the police, as they always do, capture Valjean again, his future incarceration now looks really bleak. The police bring him to the bishop. And the bishop has read Luke's gospel. The bishop has read Luke chapter 6, verse 29, the second part. He knows what love needs to look like in action. So rather than hating his enemy, the bishop delights in Valjean's return, not because he wants his stolen good back, but because instead he tells him that he's forgotten to take his best two silver candlesticks as well, and he gives those over to Valjean. And nothing is quite the same in Valjean's story ever again. One act of love, and all is transformed, and life is never the same again. In verse 29 and in the following few verses the word you is used quite a lot and it's worth noting that in the greek it is second person singular not plural this isn't jesus just in a general way saying this is the kind of attitude that you should have this is him saying to you and to me this is what you have to be like this is the kind of love in action that you need to see to follow me because i say to you this is the love of god As we go on in those next few verses, Jesus uh, has us reminding us of doing to others as they do to us. Is in many ways the way of the world. In itself, some of this is right, yes. Yes, we should do good to those who are good to us. Yes, we should lend to those who lend to us and so on. But this, just in the end, keeps things as they are. You're nice to me, so yeah, of course, I'll be quite nice back to you doing to others as we would have them do to us is often referred to as the golden rule. As I say, it's good. It keeps things right. It's shared by many religions and those of no religion. It's not just uh, here in Jesus's teaching. It's not wrong. It's right. But it's not enough. But I say to you, And perhaps to to get a real sense of what is different in Jesus' expectations and demands, we just have to uh, jump slightly ahead to verse 38. Let me uh, read that to you. In verse 38, Jesus says, Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. And this is because many of you will remember in the Old Testament the prophets were always calling out those who cheated others, especially those who tried to cheat the poor, cheating by ways such as fixing the weights uh, of the scales and shortchanging people on what they were due. And here instead Jesus saying that our giving should be a good measure, not trying to be mean, not just trying to say, "Is that enough? but a good measure, getting as much in as you can and more, the overflowing generosity of God. That's what we would want to receive. So this is a new standard, a God standard. Doing to others in this way changes the norm. And to bring it back and to remind us just how countercultural, how unnormal this is, verse 35 repeats that opening verse. Love your enemies. Do good. And he goes on to tell us, and if we do this, your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. So, all this loving our enemies, all that's so untypical of us, all the hard work is worth it, for your reward will be great. I hate to disappoint you, but let me read from what one of the foremost scholars have commented on this passage. He's written, The teaching on reward is marked by two features. The first is, reward is promised to those who act without any thought of it as a motive. And secondly, it's not an adjunct to the action, but it is the activity in its perfected form, since it derives from the character of God who gives it. So what's that actually mean? Well, let me suggest to you it looks like this. I hope this hasn't been said of you, but it might have been, and if it is, you wouldn't like it. I don't think most of us like being described as a good-for-nothing person. But that's what I want to suggest that Jesus is encouraging. Let me explain. Back in Victorian times, and not only then, children, and not only them, were governed by two things, the threat of hell and the promise of heaven the biggest stick and carrot in the book. Behave well, and you'll go to heaven. Do things badly, and you are destined for hell. As a motivational guide, it was hard to beat in many ways. And actually, I think we're often still tempted to get quite close to it in the way that we say things in a similar kind of style. But I say to you, Jesus' actual words, verse 35, do good expecting nothing in return. Jesus wants us to be good for nothing. For nothing other than doing the good thing. Doing the loving thing because it is the right thing to do. We are to be good for nothing Christians. If you want to go around telling you that the archdeacon has just... told you that all the time. That's fine. That's what I want to say. We are to be good-for-nothing Christians. And why? And all the things that matter begin often with the question, why? Because doing the good thing, doing the loving thing, is what God does. To be children of the Most High, we're told, means to be imitators of God. The child is like the parent. That's what Jesus wants. He wants us to resemble our Heavenly Father for people to see what love looks like in action in our lives and through such actions is to see the love of God, and that's the reward. Nothing for us but living out what we believe in and so letting others see something of the love of God. Verse 35 ends with uh, some Greek play on words from Luke. There's nothing like a, a bit of Greek to improve the day, uh, unless you're Federer. That's a sort of uh, <laughs> a, a week old sissy pass joke I thought I could just about still get in, for those of you who aren't checking the, 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 uh, the Melbourne score on your phones. So Luke has for us, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked, and in Greek the word kind is krestos, and ungrateful is akaristos, krestos akaristos. It sounds great in Greek, you just have to go that way. But Let's go to what he's actually trying to say. He's telling us that kindness is vital. I don't know about you, but kindness is, I think, one of the most undervalued of human behaviors, human values, human virtues. There are many things uh, I want from my children. Some of them are getting beyond it, but they are still there, most of them, with the opportunity. But many of the characteristics I want to see in their lives and up there amongst them is I want them to be people who are kind. A basic orientation to kindness changes relationships, changes how we see people and how we treat people. Sadly, humankind too often is human unkind. We don't have to look far to see the truth of that. But Luke has put this bit of Jesus' teaching about kindness here because as he draws this passage to a close, he's reminding us of what it means to be a child of God. Kindness, you see, It's not just some kind of schoolyard notice encouraging us to play fairly. It's deep in the heart of God, the compassion of God, the love of God, for he is kind. The life and the love of God, we his children are called to live, should be marked by kindness. If you know Matthew's version of this part of Jesus' teaching, you may remember that he actually sums this up by saying, be perfect therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect, Matthew 5.45. But Matthew's version sounds always a bit like the impossible command. Luke is in some ways just a little bit more generous. He says, be merciful as your Father is merciful. Now, We could spend another sermon, and you've had one from the church wardens in George and one from me now, so we're just going to try and uh, keep it a bit shorter this morning. We could spend a whole sermon on mercy. We could actually spend a whole sermon series on mercy. The mercy of God is a vital part of who God is. But let me just say this. Mercy and kindness are always close together uh, through the Bible. Uh, Look at, for example, Micah 6, chapter 8. What does the Lord require of you? To do justice, To love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Or, as other versions put it, what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. Justice and mercy always come hand in hand because this is how it is with God. But note, and this is really important at all times in life, I believe, note that justice always comes first and mercy follows Mercy isn't about saying our failures don't matter or bad behaviors don't matter and that things are just all right. First comes God's justice, which upholds the good and the true and names the wrong, the sin, the shortfalling for what it is. And then the mercy of God comes, the kindness of God, the forgiveness of God. However far we stray, However much we get it wrong, the patient love of God waits to draw us back and to hold us again in that love. Be merciful, therefore, just as your Father is merciful. And let me finally end with this. I'm uh, at last getting around to reading Justin Welby's book, Reimagining Britain. And it seems to me a a good time to be reading it with all that's going on in our parliament and country at the present. At the beginning of the book, Archbishop Justin reminds us this. He wrote, Values guide practices, and practices build virtues. Virtues also reinforce practices and guide our understanding of values. And the subtitle of the book is Foundations of Hope. Jesus the teacher, and perhaps nowhere so strongly here as in Luke chapter six, teaches us the kinds of values and virtues and good practices that make a difference, that change the norm, that make all the difference in the world. Because he's teaching us the ways of God and God's standards. And for us, well, we are to be like our Father, full, so full, overflowing with the abundance of life-giving mercy and love, bringing that hope, that hope which the world needs, that hope which is the gift of God. So may it be. Amen.